Zechariah chapter 4. We are going through this mysterious book called Zechariah on Wednesday night. We're taking a deep dive. If you didn't bring your Bible, uh, Zechariah begins on page 1091. If you're using that Bible under the seat in front of you. And then you can make your way to Zechariah chapter 4. Lord, I pray that you would open our understanding to the wonderful news of your word. The wonderful message, the hope that we have. And Lord, I do pray that you would give us profound understanding by your spirit, but I pray that it would not ever just remain intellectual information. I pray that it would be translated into practical action day by day. Lord, that as your people, we would really grab hold of those promises. Bank on them. Depend on them. Lord, instruct us tonight. Greatly encourage us. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so it's been a few weeks. Remember the historical background of this book before we begin. In 538 BC, a group of Jews were allowed to return from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. So about 50,000 Jews returned to their home city of Jerusalem. And they had two leaders, if you remember. One guy was named Zerubbabel. And he was kind of like their governor, their civic leader. And then the other leader was a guy by the name of Joshua. And Joshua was their spiritual leader. So when they arrived in Jerusalem, they found a city in ruins. It had been completely destroyed. The walls were broken down, all of the facilities. And the temple, the glorious temple that had been built by King Solomon, completely destroyed. And their task, before anything else, was to rebuild that temple. Now, that was a monumental task. That was a mountainous project. Think about it. You got to clear all the rubble, reestablish the foundation, build that temple as close as you can to King Solomon's, you know, glorious temple. And doing that while you're living in horrific living conditions. There was a poor economy at the time. People weren't living, you know, as wealthy as they had in the past. And they're just there. And then they're surrounded by enemies. They're surrounded by foes who are opposing them, harassing them. And then there was discouragement among the people, and there was distraction, and there was disobedience. So 
those people needed encouragement, strong encouragement to get that job done, especially those two leaders, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Well, the Lord gave Zechariah, the prophet, eight visions in one night meant to encourage them to rebuild that temple, to finish that project. And those eight visions are recorded in the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah. We've come to vision number five. Recorded here in chapter 4. And this is such a beautiful, encouraging one. So look what we read in verse 1. Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah himself writing says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me. As a man who is wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Now, you notice in verse 1 that the angel had to come and wake Zechariah up. So you remember, he went to bed that night, and he got four visions. And I think those visions tuckered him out. I think when you get a true vision from God, it's an intense experience, and it exhausts you. And he was exhausted. And he falls into a sound sleep, so the angel has to wake him up in order to give him this fifth vision. So apparently, whenever you get a vision from the Lord, it's intense. It takes energy out of you. Daniel the prophet was given a vision in Daniel chapter 10, and here's how he reacted. He says there, I was left alone when I saw this great vision and no strength remained in me for my vigor was turned to frailty in me and I retained no strength. Isaiah the prophet, when he received a vision, wiped him out, made him tired. Now I say that Because every now and then you're going to meet a Christian who seems to have visions all the time. And they're always having a new dream or a new vision. And they even get a little flippant by it. It's like every time they go to bed, they get a vision. Or every time I meet someone at church, hey, pastor, I had another vision. I will just tell you that that gives me red flags. Because as I read the Bible, visions are very, very serious. And they are exhausting. Now, don't get me wrong. I absolutely believe in visions and in dreams. I've been a Christian for 45 years and I've had them. I'd say in about the course of my last 45 years as a Christian, I can remember four really strong visions 
It left me exhausted. But I'll also tell you this. You know how the Lord has most often communicated to me over the last 45 years? Just right here. In the scripture. So just to give you a warning, and you should know, false teachers and false prophets are always having visions. And they're always having these fantastical stories that they want to share. Just be careful by that. Well, Zechariah the prophet had a real vision. And what does he see in this vision? Well, in the most simplistic terms, he saw a golden candlestick with seven branches. So he saw a menorah. That's what a typical menorah looks like. That golden candlestick, that menorah, was one of three items of furniture that you would find when you went into the holy place of the tabernacle, later to be the temple. So you walk in, to your left, the menorah, right there in the middle, uh, altar of burning incense, and on the right you had the table of showbread. So the priests had a very important responsibility to keep every day. And you know what that was? Keep that baby lit. Inside the holy place of the temple, it was completely covered. There were no windows. Pitch black. Completely dark inside that place. The menorah had to be lit every morning and every evening so the priest could go in and then offer the incense every morning and every evening and deal with the bread. So a daily responsibility of the priest, every morning, every evening, get the oil, fill up the containers, trim the wicks, keep the menorah burning. Okay, the menorah in this vision was different. This menorah had its own fully automated, continuous oil delivery system. He saw a menorah, seven branches, and then there was a bowl attached to it. And pipes from the bowl went to these stems. And then on either side of the bowl, to the left or to the right, you had olive trees. And there was a pipe from the, each olive tree going into the bowl, going down through the pipes into the menorah. So you had a constant, endless flow of oil. I'll bet you if I were a priest back then, I would have wanted that system, right? Very convenient. In fact, I remember years ago at our coffee shop, we had this big coffee brewing station, and we were always filling it with pitchers of water. 
And then when we finally got water, we noticed there's a direct line. And so we hooked it up. We never had to fill that container up again. Just so convenient. That's sort of what you have here directly from the tree. Into the bowl. Into the menorah. Staying lit. Now there are many different artistic representations of this. That one's kind of cool. Here's an interesting one. You know, some people, the way they read this, they say that there were seven pipes going to each stem, seven lamps. So some take from it that there were 49 pipes going from the bowl, and some have it going to seven different menorahs. It's an interesting take. But I think it's more like this, and it's more simplistic to see it this way. And no matter how you might picture this in your mind, don't miss the bottom line. A miraculous, continuous, inexhaustible supply of oil to the menorah. Oil miraculously, abundantly supplied, man not needed. Nobody has to pick olives from the olive tree, pit the olives, put the olives through a press. Nobody has to collect any oil. There's just a constant supply. All that menorah has to do is just keep burning. Okay. What does that mean? Zechariah didn't know. In verse 4, he writes, So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. I'm so glad that characters in the Bible asked the question that I would have asked. Right? What is being communicated? What is this fully automated, continuous oil delivery system menorah communicating to them? Well, we get the answer. Verse 6. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to whom? Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he, Zerubbabel, shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hand shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. 
For who has despised the days of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. This vision was meant for Zerubbabel. And the message that God was communicating to him was so encouraging. What is God saying to Zerubbabel? The task looks huge, I know. It looks impossible, I know. But I've called you to do this, and this task is going to be completed. There's a mountain before you. A mountain of work and opposition before you. That mountain's going to be removed. It's going to become plain. Zerubbabel, you already started with the foundations and you're going to complete it. Zerubbabel, trust me. Listen. There's going to be a time when you yourself will put the final stone in place. The capstone. The last stone. That temple is going to be rebuilt and then there is going to be a great celebration. Now, the Lord is also saying to Zechariah, this is why it's going to be completed. Because I'm going to give you my spirit. going to be done by my spirit. Verse 6, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. Zerubbabel, listen to me. You are not going to complete this temple by your might, which is a Hebrew word meaning strength. And in the Old Testament, it normally speaks of military strength. A human army. You're not going to complete it with a human army. Or dependence upon this giant work force. You're not going to be able to complete it by power. That's another word for strength, but it speaks of individual strength. Human manpower. No matter how hard you work. How much you sweat. You're not going to be able to complete it by that. You're going to build this thing. You're going to complete this project by my spirit. Zerubbabel, I'm going to anoint you with my spirit. And you are going to have full, continuous access to the enabling power of my spirit. Now, can you imagine how encouraging that would have been to Zerubbabel? Isn't that awesome? Now, this message was meant for Zerubbabel, but it would end up encouraging everyone. Zechariah has a, has a question in verse 11. 
He says, then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees? So you have the olive tree on the right, the olive tree on the left. He said, what are those two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are those two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the gold oil drains? Then he answered and said, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. So who are those two olive trees? The anointed ones. Well, one of them is Zerubbabel. Who do you think the other one is? Joshua, the high priest. So the Lord is encouraging all of them. Joshua, Zerubbabel, I am going to empower you with my spirit to full measure. And that anointing is going to continue through you into the whole group of workers, the whole community of people under your leadership that will be joining together to complete this. I'm going to enable all of you by the power of my Holy Spirit. It's beautiful. Now, when it comes to being enabled by the Holy Spirit, it's very important to remember something. Guess what Zerubbabel and Joshua and the rest of the people had to do? They had to work. And they had to work hard. This promise wasn't like, okay, I'm going to do it. Now you guys can just get some popcorn and watch the show. And then all of these things start mysteriously falling into place, like Mary Poppins cleaning the room. You remember that? They had to pick up the stones. They had to remove the rubbish. They had to do the design. They had to work hard. But listen, they would do so as men and women empowered by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit would give them a power greater than their own power. The Holy Spirit would give them a strength greater than their own strength. The Holy Spirit would give them a wisdom beyond wisdom of their experience or education. They were required to work hard, but they worked hard as vessels filled with the Holy Spirit. And at every circumstance in this whole project, the Holy Spirit was the wind to their sails. So understand something about the power of the Holy Spirit. You don't just sit there and do nothing. In fact, God gives you a vision. God gives you a project to complete. Man, you go for it. 
but you do it at a higher level than you could possibly ever do it. Because the Holy Spirit enables you. And you know what happened? They finished that temple in four years. Now, I want you to think about that. I know of some road construction projects here in El Paso that don't get completed in four years with modern machinery. But you had ancient people living in ancient times with ancient tools who by the power of the Holy Spirit rebuilt that temple. Listen very carefully. God does amazing things through his spirit-led, spirit-enabled people. Amen? Amazing things. Things like you can't even believe. Okay, so remember whenever we're doing Old Testament prophecy, sometimes we have to put on these weird glasses, these prophetic glasses. Remember, a lot of Old Testament prophecy has a nearsighted fulfillment and then a far-sighted fulfillment. So in this prophecy, what was the near fulfillment? Zerubbabel and Joshua and all of them built the temple. It worked. It was awesome. It was great. Are there any far-term? Does this chapter in any way find application to us? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I'll take you back to that menorah. You know, that, that menorah that you find in the holy place of the temple. It's symbolic. By the way, do you know everything inside that is symbolic? It points of Jesus. Like the table of showbread, Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. The altar of incense, Jesus is our high priest praying. And this menorah, remember, if that's not on, you got complete darkness. Well, Jesus said in John chapter 8, under a giant menorah, if you go back and look at the background of that chapter, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So the ultimate light came into this dark world and lit up the place. But Jesus would go on to tell us in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lamp stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. God always wants his people to shine, to be on fire, So we're to shine for him. And then as you remember, 
the church is eventually born in Acts chapter 2. Jesus dies, rises again, ascends to the heavenly. The church is born. Does anybody recall what happened on the day of Pentecost when the church was born? Those 120 disciples were what? The Holy Spirit came upon them. And how did the Holy Spirit land upon each one? Do you remember? Like fire. He lit them up. My church will shine. Sixty years after Pentecost, the church spread rapidly through the helps of Apostle Paul and other apostles. But 60 years later, there are local churches everywhere. In fact, there's a church in Laodicea, there's a church in Ephesus, there's a church in Smyrna and Philadelphia. Any of you recall those churches, those local churches? Jesus wrote letters to each one of those seven churches recorded in Revelation chapter 2 through 3. Jesus literally wrote letters to those local churches. And John, who saw that vision, notice what it says of Jesus. I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw how many? Seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment, down to the feet, girded about the chest with the gold band. To the angel, the church of Ephesus, right. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the, how many? The seven golden lampstands. He's writing seven letters to seven churches and he calls them lampstands. Do you realize a local church is a lampstand? The church at large is to shine. But the local church is also to shine. This church is called to shine. And understand this, this church has a huge task. A Big, big thing to do. Every local church is called to be a part of the Great Commission, taking the gospel worldwide. We are to be sharing the gospel with people. We are to be leading people to Jesus Christ. This church is to be discipling new believers to maturity. This is to be a church that is a healing agent, salt and light in El Paso, Texas. So we're to be out there reaching out to the poor, community outreaches. A church is to be ministering to every group of people you can possibly imagine. So to the children, to widows, visiting the sick in hospitals, visiting people in prison. The church is to be a community that cares for one another as a family. So we are to love one another as Jesus loved us, which Peter talked about last week. And we're to serve one another. And we're to be there for one another. 
There's all kinds of things that a, a, a local church, I, I mean, even, you know, the dreaded building project. Getting a facility up. Administrative things. I got to tell you, gang, my head hurts just thinking about all of the need right here on this side of El Paso. And everything that a local church is supposed to do. And we do that in the midst of enemies that surround, that want to harass, that want to oppose. A church is to do that even in perhaps an economy that's going south while the gas prices go north, right? And in every local church, you're going to find Christians who get discouraged and they get distracted. And some are just plain, outright disobedient. How do we do this? How? Well, I think the word to Zerubbabel is the same word to us tonight. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. You know, church, we forget. We have access to constant, unending oil. We are to do church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you, I I think that's a real challenge in America. Because a lot about the church in America has become machinery. I want you to think about all of the different things that the church in America has. We have so much curriculum, so many programs, so much stuff, so much technology. So many things that we can just sort of rely on. But the, but the Lord says to us tonight, it's not by might. It's not by power. It's not by human ingenuity. It's by the Holy Spirit. And every church should never lose sight of that. Vance Havner wrote, We say we depend on the Holy Spirit, but actually we're so wired up with our own devices that if the fire does not fall from heaven, we can turn on a switch and produce false fire of our own. He goes on to say, if there is no sound of a rushing mighty wind, we have the furnace all set to blow hot air instead. He says, God save us from a synthetic Pentecost. Gang, there is no way this church is going to do what God wants to do by our own strength. There's no way. It is by the Holy Spirit that we do the work. He doesn't need all the machinery. 
I dug out some old pictures the other day. We moved to this property a little under 20 years ago. And when we got here, we could not get a building up. I mean, we struggled with the city. You wouldn't believe it. I, you know, I, to this day, I say Nehemiah couldn't have gotten something built on this property <laughs> with these city, city officials. So here's how it turned out for us. For four years, we met in that thing. Four years. Sunday mornings in the summer. Wednesday nights. We were known as the buffet for all the mosquitoes in town. We met in that thing. We tried to stay cool. So we had these giant swamp coolers blowing in on every side of the tent. But it was hot. It was cold. Sometimes we were attacked by bees. You could see and smell the horses right next to you. We had no machinery. We had no structure. In fact, at one point, we didn't even have a bathroom. We had to bring in a porta potty. And I'll never forget the Sunday that we showed up and the porta potty had been blown over by the wind. We had a church service with no restroom available. And we made it. There's kind of a picture of the inside of it. Well, I'll tell you what, we filled that baby. We filled that baby. You realize our church doubled inside during the tent years. What's really cool about a tent is when you fill it, there's immediate overflow. <laughs> you can just go right outside the tent. And we figured out at one point how to get a video camera to video and people could actually sit in an actual building next door where it was a little cooler. I asked if I could preach from there and they could video me and just put me on. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. But I will tell you, I will tell you, the Holy Spirit moved. Because it's not about buildings. It's not about programs. It is the power of the Holy Spirit. And I will tell you this, I look back on those days as some of the greatest days. Because I'll tell you what, when you're in a tent, every Sunday, you are depending upon God. You have no idea where you're going to meet when you show up to a tent. And do you realize in four years, there was only one Sunday morning that we had to cancel. The Lord was good. And the Lord showed me something. I'll never forget it. Terry, it's not by your human ingenuity. It's not going to be by your cleverness. It's not going to be by your programs. It's not going to be by the army. It's not going to be by this or that. It's going to be by my spirit. 
Now, I would say the same thing to all of you here tonight who are involved in a ministry. Tenth hour project. It's not by clever human stuff. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit. Women's ministry. There's a lot going on here. It's not by your cleverness. It's not by your curriculum. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Youth ministry, children's ministry, worship ministry. This principle never changes. Never lose sight of that. No matter how long you walk with the Lord. Now I would also like to apply this to individual Christians. My brother, my sister in Christ. God has big plans for you. God wants to do amazing things in your life. God wants to make you an amazing woman of God. An amazing mom. An amazing wife. An amazing sister. My brother, God wants to make you an awesome husband. An awesome father. An awesome friend. And God wants to produce this sweet character of Jesus in you. And the Lord certainly wants to make sure that you would be delivered from any kind of addiction that could hurt you. And you say to yourself, well, how do I do it? Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. Can I remind you that you have access to an unending, continuous supply of Holy Spirit power? Grab hold of that. My brother, my sister in Christ, I also believe, speaking again to individuals now, we all have a place in ministry. We're all supposed to be a part of the Great Commission. God has given all of us a calling. God has given all of us a ministry. It might be behind the scenes at a soundboard or wherever it might be. It might be teaching or in a children's ministry. But I'm telling you, if you belong to the Lord, he wants to use you. And he will use you. You say, but I can't offer much. I mean, everything that I might do might be so small. Well, look at verse 10. Oh, you might star this verse. The Lord saying to Zechariah, who's despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. There goes Zerubbabel. He's got a little plumb line. The Lord doesn't despise that. In fact, the Lord loves it when we take even a baby step to what he wants to do in our life. 
And God wants to use you. And you have the Holy Spirit inside you as a Christian. God loves to do big things with small steps. Ask the kid who gave the loaves and fish. You know, it's interesting. Yesterday, so they say, marks uh, the formal beginning of what was known as the Welsh Revival. March 29, 1905. And it actually began a few months earlier. Um, That date is when it traveled from the Welsh land over to Liverpool. And God did an absolutely amazing thing in that revival. And I just want to put a picture up of the person that God used. I don't know if you've ever heard of Evan Roberts. Evan Roberts. Twenty-five years old. He worked as a coal miner from 18 to 25. Evan Roberts, the coal miner, tall, blue-eyed, young and thin, dark hair curled over his forehead and ears. He harbored a deep burden for souls. He prayed earnestly for revival. At age 25, having just begun to study for the ministry, He asked his pastor for permission to hold some evening meetings at the church. Pastor, we opened the church. Only a few people came at first, but within days, village shops were closing early for the services. People left work to secure seats at the church. The building was packed and roadways clogged with would-be attenders. Services often lasted until 4.30 a.m., Sins were confessed, sinners converted, homes restored. In neighboring town, Robert saw similar results. All across Wales, theaters closed, jails emptied, churches filled. Soccer matches were canceled to avoid conflicting with the revival. Welsh miners were so converted that their pit ponies had to be retrained to work without the prodding of curse words. Twenty-five-year-old coal miner Evan Roberts, just starting out in ministry. But he took a step, and boy, did the Holy Spirit use him. The Holy Spirit continues to this day to do miraculous things through the community of his spirit-empowered people. Be encouraged by that. Allow the Holy Spirit to use you. Okay, real quickly, can I put those lens back on? Is there something that this might even point to further in the future? Talked about the church and all of that, and I would submit to you, yes, Israel. Israel. 
Okay, so Israel, God's nation in the Old Testament, God's people. Do you realize that God intended the nation of Israel to be a light? A light to the Gentile nations. That all the world would be drawn to God through them. Did they succeed in doing that? They did not. But God has still promised that they will. And so we know what's happened during the church age. Israel has sort of been shelved, right? But we know that God has very, very big plans for the nation of Israel. That eventually they are going to come to salvation. They're going to come to Jesus and they are going to become a light. Now, I believe we're in the church age. And after the church age, with the rapture of the church, we go into the seven-year tribulation period, as we've talked about many times in the past. And during the tribulation period, God zeroes in on whom? Israel. And begins to work with Israel and draw Israel to themselves. So the book of Revelation tells us that in the tribulation period, 144,000 Jews are going to get saved and they're going to become radical evangelists. We're also told in the book of Revelation chapter 11 that these two really strange Jewish witnesses are going to show up. And I personally, we've talked about this before, I think it's going to be Elijah and Moses. Can you imagine Elijah and Moses let loose on planet Earth? And they are going to be divinely used by God in many ways. I just was curious, and I thought you might find this interesting. Look how these two witnesses are referred to. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two what? Olive trees. And the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. If anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth. And devours their enemies. So these two witnesses are coming on the scene. And perhaps Zechariah chapter 4 gives us a preview of that. These are the two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. And so as you know... Israel will be saved. Jesus will come again. He will set up a kingdom in Israel, right in Jerusalem, a throne on the kingdom. You go into the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, and literally, Israel will be a light. So we have this beautiful little vision in Zechariah chapter 4, and it It carries with it a timeless principle. God does amazing things through his people by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did it in the Old Testament era with guys like Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the workers. He's doing it in the church era today. He'll do it in the tribulation period. So from beginning to end, mankind desperately needs the Holy Spirit. 
and so do you. I don't know about you, but this just so encouraged me seeing this. Just, you know, intravenously hooked up to an oil olive tree, right? And just constant oil, constant power. I mean, how many, how often do we forget that? Maybe you're here tonight and you're tired. You're in ministry and you're tired. You're trying to live the Christian life and you're tired. You know what's going on? It's too much you. It's become too mechanical. Remember the Holy Spirit inside you and wake up every morning and remind yourself of that and seek to walk by the Spirit every single day. Be faithful. Would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? Father, I'm so grateful that you've never left us or forsaken us. I I thank you for the promise you made that you said you would not leave us as orphans. You wouldn't leave us behind to do all this work by ourselves. You said you would send a counselor, a helper. And so you have. And I pray, Lord, that we would take hold of that. Empower us, enable us. Lord, for those who are weary tonight, refresh them. For those who might even be frustrated in ministry tonight, encourage them and Remind them to be dependent upon you, your spirit. Lord, thank you. Thank you for all your promises. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, please understand that the power of the Holy Spirit is only available to believers in Christ Jesus. You might be here tonight and you're thinking, boy, I I could use some power. My life's a mess. You need to surrender your life. First of all, you need to allow Jesus Christ to save you. He died on the cross for your sins and he rose again the third day. And you need to bow. You need to bend the knee. You need to admit that you are a sinner and you need to ask him to wash away your sins and place your faith and trust in him. And he will save you and you will become a child in his family. And it's at that moment where you surrender and you ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior that the Holy Spirit takes up residence in you. So start there. That is the beginning. And if that's you, whether you're here 
live or listening online, I want to lead you in a prayer. Invite Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Just cry out to him in your heart. Lord Jesus, I surrender. I am weak. I've made a mess of things. I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. And I invite you to be my Lord and Savior. Wash away all my sins. Make me born again. Make me a brand new creation. And fill me with your spirit. And help me, Lord, to follow you. Empower Jesus' name, amen.